Welcome back to Series 3 of the Resonate podcast. My name is Emily McGrath. In these next episodes, we will be exploring the theme of creativity, from activists to performers, from Bristol to Scotland, and from musicians to poets. This month, we zone in on creativity and the environment, with me as your poet in residence and hearing from Johnny Palmer as he works to improve waterways while missing out on high fives from Greta Thunberg. With Resonate, we cultivate an open-minded space to explore ideas, experience different perspectives and listen to new voices. There is out there a whole genre of eco-poetry of which I'm largely ignorant, but as we asked our poetry connections who might like to take up our first poet in residence mantle, the word environment kept popping up in my mind in different ways. It is a striking time to think about the environment while many of us are focused on the local, parks, gardens, walks, perhaps workplaces still, or just the four walls we live in. Meanwhile, the climate crisis remains an ever-present backdrop despite the pandemic and its news cycles. I often enjoy the creative challenge of writing a poem for a specific purpose, and at the same time, writing a poem is often surprising, even to myself, about how it might turn out. In a book I'm reading about poetry at the moment, poet Caroline Bird writes that a poem is a gift from my soul to yours, but I will have dropped most of it on the floor before it reaches you. This poem is perhaps unlike others I normally write. It was inspired by three articles I read while doom scrolling, from which I learned the following. 1. Human-made objects now outweigh living things. 2. Microplastics have been found in the placentas of babies. 3. Perhaps soon humans will live much longer, ageing no more. And from these three facts, the poem Microplastics emerged. At birth, the baby gasps for breath. Onrushing oxygen inflates the lungs. Here it is for effect. This first breath is mimicry, but the scream comes. This juvenile is a new addition. It adds to our distinctiveness, forged in utero on this acrid nutrition, created by our human-made addictiveness now outweighing all the nature in the world. Cell by cell, the fetus has regenerated. Take DNA, mix with microparticles and whirled up in a placental blender, new life is activated. Here, The properties of plastic are now the properties of babies. They are resistant, free from ageing. The properties of plastic, now what this babe is, unyielding, undiseased, a glabrous being. This neonate is recycled, reconstituted. This neonate comes pre-polluted. over to Johnny and Adrian. Hello, I'm Adrian Hawkins, and I am with uh, Johnny Palmer, and we're gonna be talking about creativity and the environment. So Johnny, welcome to the Resonate podcast. Maybe you could begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Cool. Thanks for having me, Adrian. I'm involved in a few different businesses and activist projects as well. One in particular is the Wally Weir project, which is all about 
promoting making Britain's waterways cleaner, in particular, less sewage. And you do a lot of creative stuff with your work. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I run a um, communications business, which is around experiences in communication online, which is called Pitch. And we have a TV studio where we broadcast our clients' messages as well, and a software platform that helps stream that content as well. So I'm involved in quite a lot of things around creativity and communication as well. How did you originally get into the, the creative side of the work? What was sort of drew you into that field of business? Sure. Very cut down story was originally a uh, tech, actually. I love audio, still love audio. And then um, commenced to uh, career DJing at a very young age where I sort of used that as a way to buy more equipment and then got into live events. And live events is a very, very strong world for where tech and creativity merge together. So that branched off into technology and also art and expression and creating experiences for people. So it's this whole explosion of experience and tech and creativity all in one. And then the interest in the environment, uh, where did that come into the creative work? Sure. So through my teens and early 20s, I was I was very much going down this quite sort of capitalistic, um, hyper-consuming sort of path in life. I think I was brought up to believe that that sort of yuppie, make as much money, take what you can from the world was the way to do things. But as I started to sort of achieve those objectives of, you know, money and resource and so on, I found that it was utterly unfulfilling and um, didn't really feel very good. So then I started looking at the world around me and started to appreciate nature and, you know, what was going on with the environment and all the things that we need to do to try and protect it. And then I suddenly realized I had a responsibility to use the resources and contacts I had to try and do better things for the environment. So then brought environmentalism strongly into the organizations that I'm, that I'm involved in. So thinking about some of these these overlaps and, and when you started sort of looking around you and, and seeing that it wasn't particularly fulfilling, the damage that we're doing to the environment is something that that jumped out at, at you. Was there anything in particular, any sort of environmental cause that got you thinking to start with? And initially it was, I was just aware of the amount of resources we've been using. I, I think about when I was walking around the Excel Center in London after we produced a big exhibition and the amount of waste of stuff we were getting through like carpets and woods and paints and things, stuff that we've taken from our planet processed used for often questionable um, outcomes and then it goes straight in the bin it's not creating social value spiritual value environmental value it's not even communicating anything and the level of waste around that really wound me up so then I started pulling back layers and started looking at the other waste there was and how that might impact the environment, not just taking those resources, but how we dispose of those resources. Then you start looking up and down your supply chain, where things come from, where they end up. And it suddenly becomes this absolute spider's web of interconnectedness across all of these resources that we're using and how we impact the planet. And you start developing a much, much broader, more interconnected view. And it's, you know, it can give you a bit of a headache when you start doing that. So going back to where these resources are coming from and then... The sort of the whole life cycle where they end up. Are there any sort of particular examples of that that spring to mind? Probably the biggest one is it's got to be hydrocarbons. Let's be honest, the world we live in now, it's pretty much defined by the fact that a few hundred years ago, someone figured they could dig some stuff out of the ground, set it on fire, it expanded and got hot. And that's pretty much defined our entire civilization. That stuff's generally completely not renewable. Once we've got through that stuff, we're not getting it back. And in the process of going through it, we're damaging our environment on, a, on, on an obscene level. Yet we do it in such a frivolous way. We, we send trucks off to jobs that aren't necessary. We fly when we don't need to. And that is just kind of, it feels a bit disgusting to me now. So there's a there's a wastefulness as well as the, the threat of the climate change and the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and, and everything alongside that that is sort of got you thinking about some of these issues. 
yeah, wastefulness, but also the fact that we do it in such a way that means it doesn't really have a cost to us. So for a lot of people, myself included, you know, air travel, it's a relatively insignificant cost in that we can do it and it doesn't impact our lives. It shouldn't be like that. It's too accessible and it's too easy for us to exploit our planet. We're going to use resources. And that's fine, right? But if there's no feedback loop to us in individuals, what's to stop us just going completely out of control? And I, and I worry that sometimes humanity might have gone completely out of control. So not seeing the whole picture is is part of the problem is that do you think johnny an area where sort of arts creativity can help us to to get a bigger picture both yes. where the resources come from and, and then where yes. they end up yes because i think that art is all about expanding one's paradigm and view of the world and the second people start thinking more broadly or deeper they start questioning things and when you start pulling apart your paradigm of the world you start seeing things differently and i think art and creativity that that is i believe that is what the process is whereas things like the capitalistic financial model is very narrow very um siloed and doesn't promote broader thinking outside of the realm of maximizing personal resource and wealth are there any artists or people that you've worked with that are doing this particularly well? In my world, the problem is the world of music and events. A lot of it is people looking for attention and to extend their fame. I'm a little bit skeptical of people who might be greenwashing their actions. So I, I'm not, I'm, no one's jumping to mind because when I think of certain people and I won't name them, uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy. Don't even go there when it comes to your being sustainable when you're literally, and I've seen this stuff, flying your equipment around the world in old fuel guzzling aircraft. It's hard for me to cite any inspirational characters in the live events or art sector who I know of that are doing anything particularly meaningful. However, there are some sculptors and stuff out there doing crazy cool work. And, I, and I've got massive respect for those people, but they're not really in my sector. I don't think they're in events because the most fundamentally sustainable thing to do with events would be to not have them at all. So, so it's a kind of like, it's an oxymoron of an environment in which to do any kind of activism. The, the best thing to do is to boycott them. That's a nice segue into my question on, on Greta Thunberg and her visit to Bristol. I think I'm right in saying that you put together the, the speaker system and the sound system yes. for, for that event. And can you tell us a little bit about that? And is it a model for other, other things potentially? Sure. So as to not sound like a total hypocrite, I said boycott events to be more sustainable. We've got to look at net benefit here, right? Now that event had about 30,000 young people, highly receptive, very impressionable and very keen to learn. 30,000 people who were there learning and Greta came by train. We used one van and we powered the whole event off solar power. So I believe that while we were doing things that were damaging to our environment, the net benefit was significant because of the sort of consciousness shift amongst that crowd of 30,000 people. So that kind of event is a positive thing. Yep. So it's a cost benefit analysis. And then it probably wouldn't have been that much actual carbon dioxide if we'd used electricity for the, for the sound system that day. But it was important to, to do things a bit differently, you think? Yeah, we could have. I mean, you could have run that from, say, a 30 kVA generator and probably could have done the whole event on, say, 50 or 100 litres of diesel, which is not that much. It's less than you'd spend driving to London and back. But to me, there was an educational opportunity whereby our actions of doing it from solar panel made a very powerful point to a very large audience that this can be done. So I feel we're affecting change that's much bigger than what our actions actually are. And that's where communication comes in around the sustainable activities that we do. Sometimes the communication is more valuable than the act. Did you get to chat to Greta when she was in Bristol? I was hoping to high five her, but I was standing on the stage, I was stage managing and she and she walks past and she's got this kind of like very stern, not very cuddly high fivey kind of vibe about her. So <laughs> I just I just stood there oh, and let her go past and then had to then realize how short she was and the mic stand was way too high and was blocking her. So I had to scuttle on stage and drag the mic down. 
how important do you think her work is in highlighting the, the climate crisis? Not wanting to be blasphemous, I feel that in the environmental world, she's almost like a messiah character. Her existence and what she says has allowed a certain generation of people to be empowered to have a voice and realize they have a voice. So she's been a massive catalyst for change within, within that world. I think she's been absolutely vital. She's also become an exemplar to young people that their youth is often their biggest asset. Her as a character, catalyst and entity has been incredibly powerful to the way it's changed people's view of youth and of activism and environmentalism. So a hugely powerful and important person. I also think her as an individual is almost coincidental to that role though. The world needed that character and she happened to fulfill it. So maybe we can move on and could you tell us a little bit more about the the Wally Weir project? Yeah, yeah. So this place I used to go swimming a lot, still do, uh, called Wally. It was going to pot a little bit and um, with rubbish and just not going very well. And I thought I should buy some land. So I spoke to my vicar, Lee Barnes, and you know had a chat with him about, is this my cooling? What's going on here? And I, and I, and I bought this land and then I've, I've used it now as a place to plant some trees, which is you know not that significant, but it's a start. But more importantly, I'm using it to give myself a platform and to give others a place where they can express their desire to use the countryside and to sort out Britain's waterways. So I'm using it as a way to communicate a much bigger message than what that site is. And it's on the Avon River. Yes, Avon River upstream from Bath. Do you know how many people use that for swimming? Oh, we, we know that often on a busy day, over a thousand people will go through the site. And, and to me, that's a thousand people who've gone to the countryside, looked around and thought, this is all right. I quite like this place. And I believe that that is the first step to then really taking an interest in what's happening in the environment and who knows, even changing the way they live to protect this beautiful planet that we live on. And now, a short poetry interlude. A photographer on a frosty morning. Brilliant light bounds in through the window and hazy billows of steam emanate from rooftops. The world is transfigured, reconfigured in white, transformed, formed only in ice set against the cobalt sky. It beckons me to capture it. I skate out on unsorted pavements. Breathing in lungfuls of Baltic air, I tread footprints through crunching grass, but I leave no imprints in the solid earth. Here, the land of the park, is marked by light and dark, bisected by slender shadows reaching down hills in entirety, but at the brows and escaping out from behind each tree, rays of sunshine radiate. The small lake is growing a frozen solid skin, while children explore by throwing blocks of ice from the edge. They shatter and scatter and skitter away across the surface. Against the cerulean, the sun gains its strength. Already the crystal structures wane. The day enters a liminal phase as the thaw is underway and the wintry carpet makes way for mud. And are the waters at the moment, are they polluted? Are they are they not good for swimming? Are they good for swimming? Okay, so it's been tested a couple of times and we've generally come back with quite good water quality. However, I now get daily emails, automatic alerts from Wessex Water as to when they are pumping raw sewage in the river. And I've had three such emails today saying raw sewage is pumping into the river upstream from Worley. So if you're listening to this podcast... Don't go swimming tomorrow, maybe. <laughs> well, you can. It's, it's very diluted, but you just got to be mindful that you might be swimming in someone's poo. And you got to ask yourself, do you think that's okay? And as a whole, then, the sort of the river systems in the UK, is the, the sewage, is that the biggest issue or fertilizers? Or where, where do you see the, the biggest challenge for cleaning up our waters? 
Well, I thought it was simple and I've learned that it's not. Uh, you've highlighted two things there, um, fertilizers, which is things like nitrates and phosphates, which cause algae um, populations to grow, which can affect fish and so on. The thing I'm specifically focusing on is sewage, because I believe that's totally avoidable, completely unacceptable. And also it's a really easy cause. It's not technical. It's like, do you want poo in the river? Yes or no. Whereas when you start talking about fertilizers and nitrates and phosphates, it instantly gets scientific and people can't engage with that as easily. So I'm, I'm focusing on the sewage issue. Trying to make it in sort of a, a way that people can understand one problem at a time approach. Exactly. Other people are focusing on um, plastics in rivers, which is also a really important issue on a much more broader ecological level. But I'm focusing on sewage, which is much more of a human issue, which I think is more relatable. And I like to think that starts people thinking more about the way they interact with their environment because it's so relatable and it's so popularist. And it struck me as you were talking that sort of the experience of going there and being outside and, and swimming and actually being part of that is very much in your vision of, of how we can start to address some of these these issues is that is that correct yeah no absolutely i think that humans in a lot of ways i hate to say it but you know we are very much not selfish but we're, we, we protect the things we love right and if it's abstract and distance it's hard to act on it but if you love swimming in a river and then you realize bad things are happening to it you're much more likely to act so i think it's a really good entry point to acting on the environment i haven't been to, to wally weir yet um but are there any sort of artistic are there sort of murals or anything that yes there is there's loads of stuff uh look online i actually did an artist i wanted i wanted some watercolors of the site and i thought oh god i could try and commission a painting that's going to cost loads of money so what i did was um i did a competition i read a book about launching competitions to get things done so i launched an art competition of people to paint paintings of wally and i had like 10 entries so one won it and the other all the other entries i bought them so i've got this collection of wally wear oil paintings and they're online johnny you said yeah there's photos of them if you look on the wally wear website you'll see loads of them i've got a few of them sitting behind me they're really really stunning artwork if you want a painting done set up an art competition um so just sort of moving on towards the end now thinking more generally then this connection between creativity and protecting the environment how important do you see that connection where do you see the role of art and creativity in addressing the, the climate crisis and the environmental crisis of the 21st century? I think art and creativity, is a, well, art is a great thing for people to love and appreciate and enjoy and learn from. So any kind of artistic expression around environmental issues is a, is a positive way of communicating. I think a lot of art generally sways towards natural things and musical things. You don't see that much art around you know technology as much as you do nature. So it's a good way of communicating. Again, creativity, I think, makes people question things and pull back their assumptions and paradigms and prejudices. And once we as humans do that, it's, we very quickly realize we're part of an ecosystem and we have this beautiful planet around us and we engage on that front. So I think it's about making us think more, but also helping others to communicate, which again gives us more information, which I believe generally is going to result in a path to caring and acting for the environment a lot more. Yeah, so it creates that emotional connection at the same time as having all the, the educational benefits of sort of stepping back and seeing the, the bigger picture. So. Yeah, it's just about breaking out of the numbness a lot of people have. You know, there's a guy that sings a song called Wake Up Now. It's just like that idea of like, just just break, break, think, you know, sort of like just wake up and see what's going on in the world around you. And I think that that very quickly results in a, in a love and respect for nature, which, which in, in turn makes you want to protect it and help the environment. And you mentioned talking to, to the vicar, Lee Barnes, about the, the purchase of, of Wally Weir. Do you see a role for the church in any of this sort of creativity and environment? Is, is that part of that? Is there room for, for spirituality in, in some of these, these questions? Yeah, and I think it's a really personal thing for me. Uh, 
spirituality, religion, relationship with God, that cluster of stuff plays a part in terms of questioning things about what your calling might be, um, what your role might be, whether you're playing a positive spiritual role, or even if, even, even if you're atheist or agnostic, actually thinking, what is my role here to support those who are religious and get benefit or purpose from it? So I think it's a really individual thing down to the person. I think the church as an institution can probably do a lot just by creating a, a forum by which people can talk about these things and share ideas. I feel that Christianity's always been a little bit like God is at top, man, very gendered, is one down from God, and then that we have dominion over nature. I, I feel the way I've been brought up, that's very much the way Christianity's trained us to believe we're somehow above or superior to uh, the natural environment. And, and I think we've got to change that real fast. And I wonder if maybe Christianity in, the, in that sort of hierarchical paradigm has actually maybe contributed to some of the issues that we've got. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think I've, I've actually been doing a little bit of reading about some of those things. And I think that's exactly um, this sort of the, the problem, this, this notion of or one reading of biblical stewardship is that we're in charge and superior to the rest of the world. And that has actually created some of the, the problems that we're, we're facing today. Whereas I think if you look at humans as being a lot more interconnected and, and part of the, these wider ecosystems that, that clearly we are, I mean, even just talking about sewage at, at Worley Weir, you realize that we're intimately connected with these, these landscapes and these rivers in lots of different ways and that we, we can't separate ourselves but I think you're right that Christianity in particular has maybe created a, a sense of separation of people from, from the world around them. Yeah, I, 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 I'm concerned that is what's happened. And I hope that um, we as a society and the, the church can shake that off. And we realize that we are maybe not as superior as we think we are when it comes to nature. You know what? I look at beavers. Beavers are the best, right? They're amazing. The stuff they do with limited resources, we accuse them of not being very clever, but they are so smart, you know? And it makes me think like, how smart are we as a species? The, the, the species, it's an absolute master of destroying its habitat. And I just question this, this idea that we're somehow superior because I'm, I'm not seeing any real evidence of that, actually. And I think if we look at a, a bee as being, you know, a creature that has a, a level of merit to it in a similar way that humans do, I think that's a really positive thing to respect and love the creatures around us and not see them as equals, but see them as having equal value in their own unique way. Is there anything I'm missing, Johnny? Any other things that you're involved in that sort of create this, this intersection between the creativity and... There's one thing I'm doing right now, it's really cool. And that's this aeroplane that we bought. This is cool, right? So this is awesome. This is the ultimate icon of hyper-consuming, greedy capitalism right it's an airliner boeing 727 private jet like proper like old school yuppie the ultimate just disgusting consumption right and now we've got this thing i bought it and it's being repurposed as a sustainable office space as a way of reducing our emissions on constructing new buildings right and now it's if you're keeping up here it's coming to bristol and then we're hooking up with a bunch of artists who are going to use it as a canvas from which to do projection mapping street art and then we're going to use it as a hub space for artists and chefs to do some really really cool stuff on board so it's a collision of like everything, yeah? Taking what was bad and actually turning it into something that is yeah, good. Yeah, but something that's like creatively expressive, um, reducing carbon emissions, I, I hope is going to create some social capital as well. And I just love that collision of all this crazy cool stuff in a saying it's just going to be a lot of fun. And I think, I think that's great. I love that. So my final question, are you optimistic about the, the future? Does the future look good? Actually, all evidence would suggest the future is not looking great environmentally. 
I don't believe that we're going to collapse as a society and the earth will still be here. That's my one thing that re reassures me. The planet will still be here if humans aren't. What I think will happen is that humans are going to reemerge into a different version of ourselves where we're much more creative, much more collaborative, super smart with engineering and resource allocation, a really advanced, conscious, collaborative society. And I think that we can get through that. But I think that there'll only be some of us who can adopt that new way of living. And I think for some people, the future is going to be really tough. But I think if if I could have a crystal ball of 100 years time, I'd like to think it's a, you know, Buckminster Fuller style utopic future. That, that's what I'm that's what I'm banking on. If that doesn't happen and the capitalist model is the last thing surviving, which I also think is possible, I think that the wealthy and that's pretty much everyone living in, in Northwest Europe will probably be OK. And other parts of the world are going to have a really, really hard time. Well, there's there's some positive in there. So that maybe is a, a good place to, to leave it. Thank you very much for the conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us and help us think through some of these, these issues. And thank you very Thanks much. for having me. Thank you. This podcast was produced by me, Emily McGrath, and featuring poetry written by me also. Thank you to Adrian Hawkins and especially to our interviewee, Johnny Palmer. This podcast is brought to you by the Resonate Bristol team associated with St. Stephen's and Holy Trinity Hotwells Churches, Bristol. The music was created by Scott Holmes, accessed through the free music archive. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Resonate Bristol. Thank you for listening and join us again next time.